your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew's Gospel, and for the purposes of our reading, if you will find chapters 1 and chapter 28, the beginning and the end of the Gospel of Matthew, those uh, will be the chapters where we take our readings from in just a moment. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this narrative of the birth of Jesus, Jesus born of a virgin, Jesus born to Mary, Jesus born in Bethlehem, Jesus born as the promised one, Jesus born as the yes and amen to all the promises of God for us, Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. And Matthew interprets the birth of Jesus by citing a passage from Isaiah. We'll read this passage in just a moment where Matthew says, they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's the way the gospel begins. The gospel of Matthew begins with this historical note that God came down to earth. An indication of God's abiding presence with mankind in the earthly ministry of Jesus. God with us. The gospel of Matthew begins with a similar note. It's not just that God is with us in the earthly ministry of Jesus or that God was with us in some time past, but that God is with us always, even to the end of the age, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So the message is this. It's December 26th, the day after Christmas, and God is still with us. If you found your way to Matthew chapter 1, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. We'll read verses 22 and 23 together. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 22. Here the Bible says concerning the birth of Jesus. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Now before you're seated, turn over to Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 16. Here the Bible says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. These are passages which I hope would be somewhat familiar to to many of you. This is an explanation of the birth of of Jesus and an explanation of the primary call, the mission, the focus of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. I used to be really concerned with not having repetition in preaching. I wanted that each week something would be cast a little differently or stated a little differently. But I've discovered over the course of time in ministry that just about the time I have grown weary of saying it, most of the people have just begun to hear it. So I want to press again here in in a few minutes at the beginning of our message on the Christmas narrative. 
the primary message being God is with us, that God came down clothing himself in flesh and walking in our midst. You might be amazed at the number of people who have missed this pivotal part of the story, that God came down, that we're not just celebrating the birth of a child, but the birth of the Christ child, the embodiment of God who is in heaven, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the head of the church, the creator of all things. He is God in the flesh. So Matthew helps us to see that his birth is an indication that God is with us in a literal, physical sense. He came unto his own in spite of the fact that many of his own did not receive him. Jesus walked the face of this earth. At a, at a decided moment in time in history, God came down clothed in flesh, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. God was literally, physically with mankind in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And as we saw in the closing verses of the Gospel of Matthew, God is literally, spiritually with us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, by the power and abiding presence of his Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who have entrusted their souls to him. God is with us. Now, noting the presence of God with us in an earthly sense at the beginning— and noting the presence of God with us in a spiritual sense in the close of Matthew's gospel is a writer's technique of demonstrating for us that this is a primary purpose of Matthew's gospel. One of the main focal points of the gospel of Matthew is to demonstrate that in fact God is with us. And it doesn't sort of drift off and then come back at different places. It doesn't just pop up in the beginning and then arise at the end. The placement of those passages as bookends to the gospel are signposts to us that we're being trained throughout the gospel of Matthew of the abiding presence of God with us. And so I want to show you a few of the ways that indeed God is with us as we sort of walk through the gospel of Matthew and the time we have together. In these early chapters, Jesus identifies with the experiences of Israel. He identifies with Israel, and I would argue that by extension, he identifies with us. For, for instance, when the persecution of Herod arises in Matthew chapter 2, Joseph takes his young family, Mary and the infant Jesus, and they exile themselves to Egypt. You might remember from the Old Testament in Israel's history, there came a famine and there was special difficulty. And so the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, made their way down to Egypt in hopes of surviving this difficult season in their history. What they didn't know is that their brother Joseph was waiting for them there, serving as something of their savior, prime minister of Egypt, who would provide for all of their needs. And eventually, Israel as a nation, Israel as a people, the sons of Jacob, would relocate themselves for a time in history to the land of Egypt. 
But there arose a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. In other words, he didn't know the history of Joseph and his people and their importance to the history of the kingdom of Egypt. And so he enslaved the Israelite people. And in that state of bondage, they remained until God raised up a prophet named Moses to deliver the people of God from their Egyptian slavery or bondage. In the same way, at the death of Herod, Joseph gathered his young family once more, Mary and the now toddling Jesus, and relocated them to Galilee, to Nazareth, which would be their hometown and base for the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, Matthew tells us, was done in order that the, prophet, uh, the words of the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So even the early experience of moving to Egypt and then being called back into the promised land parallels that experience of the people of Israel. It's a way of Matthew indicating to us Jesus' identification with the people of Israel. And in a more general sense, Jesus identifying with us as the people of God, grafted in by faith to the people of Israel. But the parallels continue on. In fact, in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, you might go ahead and turn there with me. Jesus is driven into the wilderness for a time of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights without food. And during that 40 days, 40 days which parallels the experience of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering, Jesus is tested and tried again and again by Satan. You may remember that during Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were too tested and tried by Satan. Only in the example of Israel, they failed miserably again and again and again. The difference in Jesus' experiences of 40 days and 40 nights as compared to the experiences of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering is that Jesus was again and again victorious over the temptations of Satan. Rather than succumbing to temptation, rather than succumbing to his weariness, rather than succumbing to his hunger and his thirst in the wilderness, Jesus prevails by the power of the word of God and stands firm against the temptation and the attacks of Satan. It is as though Matthew is indicating not only Jesus' identification with the nation of Israel, but that he has himself, one man, the God-man, has done on our behalf what an entire nation could not themselves do. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, the Bible says this, After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is good for the people of God. It was his sustenance in the wilderness. Verse 5, the Bible says the devil came again and took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against the stone. We should be reminded here that one of the oft used tactics of Satan is to manipulate and distort the word of God, deceiving many by its manipulation and distortion. You, you need not make the mistake of believing that this is an ancient method no longer employed. There is a constant barrage of misrepresentations of God's word that exists floating around about us even in the world today. Jesus would respond again in verse 7. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. 
Verse 8, the Bible says, Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. Satan said, And Jesus said, Rather, go away, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and immediately angels came and began to serve him. There are a number of lessons that might be learned from those 11 verses not the least of which is the importance of God's word for the people of God. A warning against the, the, the manipulation and distortion of God's word by Satan and satanic influences that would beset us in our faith or lead us astray. I, I can think of a few things any more distaste, distasteful or worse than being led astray, led away from the truth by a zeal for the truth, being fed misinformation by misrepresentations of God's word. That's exactly what Satan attempts to do in our passage. There, there is perhaps a deeper level of application that we might draw from this passage. Everything Satan offered Jesus in the text, he ultimately gets. Only he doesn't get it by taking the shortcuts that Satan offers him in our passage. It's a reminder to us of that timeless ethical principle that the ends do not justify the means. That just as God has ordained certain outcomes, he's ordained the means of achieving those outcomes as well. He deserves everything Satan offers, and ultimately, he receives everything Satan offers. Only not in these shortcut kind of ways. He receives all authority in heaven and on earth, the praise of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Bread, bountiful bread, through his crucifixion and exaltation in resurrection. More than anything else, these verses stand in my estimation as a note to us that Jesus is with us even in the height of temptation. What Matthew says somewhat symbolically here in these verses, the apostle Paul would say emphatically in his letter to the church at Corinth, noting that regardless of the power or the stress we may experience under great temptation, there is, by faith in Christ, always a way of escape for us. There's a way to be set free. There's a way of escape that is afforded us by faith in Jesus. And that explanation of sin and its work in the life of the believer in Romans chapter 6 there are those who've heard the gospel and said we should sin more in order that grace may abound. There is free and full forgiveness for us. Who cares what we do now? Paul says this is entirely the wrong way of thinking. The thing that makes sin so stupid for the believer is that we have been liberated. We have been, for us, a, a way of escape has been provided for us. God is with us even in the throes of temptation. One of the unique features of the Gospel of Matthew is the way that it organizes so much of the content of Jesus' teaching ministry. Every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make reference to the fact that Jesus preaches and teaches, but only Matthew gives as much time and focus to the actual content of Jesus' teaching ministry as he does. It is that Matthew becomes kind of a handbook of instruction on what it looks like to be with Jesus. We get the sermons of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, which makes sense of this theme, God with us. The presence of God in our life should reorient all of our life. 
if God is with us, our life should look fundamentally different than the lives of those around us. Our perspectives have changed. Our worldview has been set on its ear. Everything is now different for us because God is with us. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, unlike the perspective of the world in which the proud and the prosperous and the well-fed are regarded as blessed in the kingdom, because God is with us, now it is that the poor in spirit are blessed. Now it is that the meek are blessed as heirs of the earth. Now it is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they shall be filled. Everything has been changed now by the drawing near of God through the person and work of his Holy Spirit. Over in Matthew chapters 10 and 11, go ahead and turn there with me if you would. Jesus focuses on this reality that following Christ can often mean great difficulty for us. Chapter 10, the focus is the promise of persecution. If you walk with me, there will be hardships and difficulties. Jesus says, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There are challenges that come with walking with Jesus. And then in chapter 11, Jesus is sent message by way of John the Baptist's disciples to ask a critically important question. John is in prison, and John is in prison, listen, John is in prison being persecuted for holding to biblical values when it comes to marriage and family. Sound familiar? John sends asking a question. Specifically, are you the one who is to come? Verse 3, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you who I believed you to be, Jesus? John is saying here, I'm in prison because I've held the biblical values. I'm in prison because I spoke for your name. I'm in prison because I declared you're the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. I'm in prison for upholding the teachings of the Scripture. Are you who you say you are? Maybe more importantly, are you who, you who I've said you are? Jesus responds in Matthew eleven four 4 through 6. Listen carefully to what's said here. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. Now, most of us would not see this, but John most certainly would. What Jesus does in responding to John the Baptist is to quote Isaiah 61, which may not mean a thing in this world to you, but here's what Isaiah 61 is. Isaiah 61 is a passage in the Old Testament that is specific to the Messiah. As God makes his promise that one would come in the lineage of David to deliver Israel from her sins, to be the yes and amen to all the promises of God, Isaiah 61 speaks with force of that person. In fact, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he goes to the city of Nazareth, he's given the scroll of Isaiah from which to read, and he reads from Isaiah 61. It's a controversial passage because he assigns the teaching of Isaiah 61 to himself as the anointed one, the promised one of God, the yes and amen to all the promises of God. And here, in responding to John, he quotes from the same passage. By way of quotation, what Jesus is saying to John the Baptist is, yes, 
I am the one you've waited for. I am the one you've spoken of. I am the one who is to come. There is no one else. It is me, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But what Jesus says here in verses 4 through 6 is significant not only for what he says, but also for what he does not say. Listen again. Report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Now, I doubt that there are many that instantly connected that with Isaiah 61. I doubt there are, 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 are any at all who would recognize that there is something missing from this quotation from Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, the Bible promises that when the Messiah comes, he'll give sight to the blind. He'll give the ability to walk to the lame. He'll give healing to those who have skin diseases. He'll give hearing to the deaf. He'll give life to the dead. He'll give prosperity to the poor. He'll give the good news to all people and that he will set the captives free. That little phrase would most certainly have resonated with John, captive at the present hour. It, it is that by way of Jesus saying what he does say, and Jesus not saying what he doesn't say, that he's communicating to John, yes, I am the Messiah, not a Messiah who's come to alleviate all of your difficulties and hardships, but one who has come to be with you through those difficulties and hardships. God is with us in the difficulties of life, and never more is this clear than here in the example of John the Baptist. Even facing imminent death, Christ is with him, the only begotten Son of God, walking with us through the hardships of life. Now, that may be somewhat veiled in Matthew 10 and 11, but it is personalized and becomes all the more clear in Matthew chapter 16. Turn with me there. What Matthew chapter 16 is probably best known for is this exchange that takes place between Peter and Jesus. They come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, a city named Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar and, and Philip. And all over Caesarea Philippi, there are these statues and there are indicators of the feelings of the people with regards to Caesar and Philip. It's clear what they think about Caesar. It's clear what they think about Philip. But Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks of them, who do you say that I, the son of man, am? Peter, functioning as the spokesperson for those disciples, says, you are the Christ, the son of of the living God. And indeed what Peter says there is true. Jesus even affirms this statement from Peter. He said, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." In other words, this fit of brilliance that you've had, Peter, is not from you, it is from God. It exceeds your natural intelligence. What you've just said, God must have revealed to you. But it becomes clear in short order that although Peter speaks the truth, he has no understanding whatsoever of what he's talking about. Look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. 
it's clear in the next passage that Peter didn't understand the nature of following Jesus, that that involved much suffering and sacrifice, nor did he understand that Jesus had come to suffer and die a ransom for the sins of many. Jesus' response to Peter here is famous. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. And what Jesus has said in essence there is, is that, Peter, your inability to account for suffering and hardship as it relates to walking with me is not just a misunderstanding of the gospel, it is satanic. There are misrepresentations of the gospel at play in the world today that would say to you that walking with Jesus is all sunshine and roses. And what Jesus has said in this passage, the way Jesus has diagnosed that misrepresentation of the gospel is not just a mistake or a hiccup or an error. He has diagnosed that misrepresentation as satanic, as hellish, as devilish. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. Then he goes on to personalize this, to help us to bring this into our personal experience in verse 24. This is immediately after referencing Peter as Satan. He says, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the idea of taking up the cross is not about bearing with some annoyance or inconvenience. No one in the first century would dream of making reference to the cross, the instrument of, of suffering, pain, agony, and death in such a flippant or frivolous kind of way. Jesus said, you must take up the cross and come after me. In the way I lay my life down for the well-being of my people, you must be willing to lay your life down as well. You must die to yourself, taking up the cross and coming after me. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that suffering and hardship are a necessary, inevitable part of our journey in walking with Jesus. But notice again the language of verse 24. If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus does not charge us that we must go it alone, suffer the hardships and challenges of life on our own independently. Here Jesus says, not only am I with you, but I go before you in taking up the cross, marching unto death for the good and advancement of my kingdom. God is with us in all of the hardships of life. And there ought be great comfort for us in that reality. I got to tell you, my experience has been that God most often works. His voice is most often heard through the megaphone of pain and suffering. We were talking this morning, some men that meet with me for prayer before the first service about gospel sharing and gospel preaching and, and how it often works in, in a way that is opposite of modern day agriculture. Jesus uses the language of sowing seed and plowing ground. In, in contemporary agriculture, what we know is that most often you plow ground and then you scatter seed. But I have experienced it often the case when it comes to spiritual agriculture. The seed is sown. And sometime later, days, weeks, sometimes even years, the circumstances, the hardships, the pains of life come along to plow under that gospel seed that ultimately springs forth into everlasting life. 
Very, very, very few ever come to faith in Jesus apart from pain and suffering. And very, very, very few ever grow, ever grow any apart from pain and suffering. And brothers and sisters, seldom does the kingdom of God advance apart from pain and suffering. The promise of the gospel is not to alleviate all of our aches and pains, but that in spite of what comes our way, even in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. Aren't you glad for that? Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is another major section of Jesus' teaching. This is called the Olivet Discourse for those who are interested in such things. And here Jesus teaches primarily on the second coming of Christ, the promise that he would come again. Look at Matthew 24 verses 30 and 31. Here the Bible says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Christmas season, a season, a time during which we celebrate the first coming of Christ, is a great time to remind ourselves of the promise of the second coming of Christ. As certain as Jesus was born in a Bethlehem manger some 2,000 years ago, he is coming again. He's made a promise, and he always keeps his word. The first advent of Jesus is the guarantee, it is the deposit, the assurance, the certainty of the second coming of Christ. One day, the unseen presence of God with us will be seen. These eyes of faith will be retired in favor of eyes of sight. We will see him face to face. We will meet him in the air. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming again. The guarantee that God is with us even until the end. Here, here's a fourth principle and one that you may struggle with a bit. One that was even difficult for me to type in the very notes from which I preach. You ready? Often it is that God is with us when we don't want him. There are multiple examples of this reality in Matthew's gospel. One of the most notable is the experience of Peter who denies Jesus in those last hours of his life, not once, not twice, but three times. But perhaps the best example of this is the case of Barabbas in Matthew 27 and verse 15. If you would turn there and read with me. Matthew 27, verse 15. Here the Bible says, At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah for he knew they'd handed him over because of envy while he was still sitting on the judge's bench his wife sent word to him have nothing to do with that righteous man for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him the chief priest and the elders however persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus the governor asked them which of the two do you want me to release for you and they answered, Barabbas. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus who is called Messiah? 
And they all answered, crucify him. He said, why? What's he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Some people see this as some kind of noble act on the part of Pilate. This is cowardice on full display. But notice how the people respond to Pilate's objection in verse 25. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. One one of the features of Matthew's gospel, and I think every gospel when it comes to the passion narrative, telling the story of the final days of Jesus' earthly life is the way irony is often used. We understand irony, things are ironic for us, and sometimes it can be very serious, and sometimes it can be kind of comedic, it can be funny for its irony, but it's always deadly serious in the gospel account of Jesus' death and crucifixion. There is, for instance, the irony of Jesus' captors bowing to him and mocking him as the king of the Jews, They're placing that placard above his head on the cross, king of the Jews. Never perceiving in their spiritual blindness that indeed he is the king of the Jews. Mocking him in his powerlessness. He saved others. Let him save himself. Never, never, never perceiving that in this moment of powerlessness and indignity it was by his unwillingness to save himself that he was saving others they could never fathom the kind of power that was at the access of our savior jesus matthew himself notes for us he could have dispatched a legion of angels to have removed him from the cross in that moment Pilate's conviction that he bore some power over Jesus only to have Jesus inform him you could have no power whatsoever except it were given from above. This facade of powerlessness was on our behalf that for the joy that was set before him he might bear with the pain and the agony of the cross that we might taste salvation full and free. Oh, the irony. It's at play in verse 25 as well. This crowd that cried, his blood be on us and on our children. Many would be gathered days later when Peter and other disciples preached on the other side of the resurrection. They held forth the promise of the gospel. In fact, they personalized the message of the gospel. They said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they cried out to the disciples, what must we do to be saved in repentance and faith? They would become, in many cases, the beneficiary of Christ's death on that cross. His blood would be on them and on their children only in ways they could never have imagined. With atoning, forgiving force. With the effect of washing away all their sins and sealing for them their eternity in heaven. Indeed, his blood would be on us and our children. Praise be unto God. Here we're reminded in a way that ought to turn the heart. 
that God is with us even when we don't want him. There are times when we kick against the goads, when we run away from God. For every believer, there was a season in your life when you turned and ran away from the things of God. And even periodically in the experience of believers, there are times when we wish God would just turn his head. But even in our rebelliousness, God pursues us with great grace and mercy and compassion. He comes after us. Listen, when God found me I was not looking for him but praise be unto God he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood aren't you glad that when we're faithless he is faithful even when we don't want him God is with his people there's a final way one we've already referenced in our time together that God is with us he is with us in making disciples look to those last verses of Matthew's gospel Matthew 28, 16 and following. Again, reading in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the primary objective of the church, to make disciples of the nations. Think of all that God has assigned to us as followers of Jesus. He's given us the gift of fellowship. We gather in this way. We enjoy fellowship even outside the corporate assembly of the church. We participate collectively and individually in, in, in worship. But all, all of these things that he's called us to, we could really do better in heaven than we do here on earth. I love our fellowship. I love to meet together with this body. But fellowship is sweeter in heaven. I love the worship ministry of our church and to be able to gather in, in song. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with voice issues this morning, as you've probably taken note of already. And this is like a weekly experience, only it's... It's been dragged out by 75 degree days in the middle of the Christmas season this past week. But I, I, I struggle more from singing through three services than I do preaching through three services. It's not as hard on the voice to preach through three as it is to sing through three. I love our worship ministry, but worship will be better in heaven than it could ever be on earth. There, there's really nothing that God has called us to that we can't do better in heaven than we can on earth, save this one thing, the making of disciples. This is why we are here. This is the primary objective for the church of Jesus Christ here on earth, to let the nations know that God is with his people, that Jesus came to save sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection. That the appropriate response to this message is to turn from our sin and turn to Christ for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We are here. The gospel came to us because it was headed to someone else. Our role, our responsibility, our duty, our job, our delight, our joy, our pleasure in life is to tell others of the goodness of God toward us. To relish what he's done for us and to extend the free gift of his salvation to those we might cross paths with. And as we do, as we do, there is the promised presence of God with us.
as we labor to make disciples, to make Jesus known in all the earth, the promise of God's word is that he is with us in that endeavor. Now listen, you may be wrestling in your mind this morning to sort of come to terms with this. God is everywhere, right? He is omnipresent, yes. But I'm talking here about the unique, manifest presence of God with us as we labor to make him known in making disciples. We, we mentioned moments ago how God draws near in suffering. And isn't he close in the hospital room, by the deathbed, in the funeral home, at the memorial service? Isn't he near unto his people in those settings? The same can be said of our efforts at making disciples of all nations. He goes with us. Indeed, he goes before us. God is with us as we seek to make disciples. I think probably all of us, at least many of us, have had experiences of participating in church experiences that seem to be void of any spirit. We are aware of Assemblies masquerading under the banner of the church and the gospel with no semblance of spirit. They're cold and harsh, and indifferent, spiritually apathetic. It seems to me by observation that in every case, that is the direct product of having lost sight of the main thing, which is to make disciples of all nations. And I got to tell you, the secret of the health we enjoy together as a body, the secret of the, the, the unity and sense of togetherness that we enjoy as a body here at Longview Point is in so many ways the product of focusing on making disciples of all nations. Keep the main thing the main thing, and it has a remarkable way of keeping everything else in its proper place and priority. But I, I wonder for you individually, what the priority of your life is this morning. Here we are on the cusp of making resolutions and setting plans and new disciplines for a new year. I wonder what place, what priority making disciples of all nations has among your New Year's resolutions or your New Year's priorities. And I would submit to you that it ought to be first and foremost in some ways, exceeding your Bible reading plans and your efforts at prayerful fellowship with God for drawing near to God. It must be a part of the equation when it comes to drawing near to him, to having a healthy, growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus. What I want you to see above all else in our time together, and I want you to be taken by this. I want you to be swept off your feet by this. I, I want you to be stricken with awe at this notion. That God who is in heaven, God who made the world as we observe it today, who flung the stars in their courses, who set the earth on its axis, who made us even as we are in all of our marvelous complexity. From, from the great mountains we observe in awe and wonder to those tiny things observed only by microscopes. God is Lord of all. That God is with us as his people. Brothers and sisters, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That ought to birth confidence and zealousness and boldness in our heart as we go, that even as we go, he is 
with us in every conceivable way. Are you glad this morning that God is with us? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the message of the gospel. I pray, God, that you would, that you would help us to cherish this simple observation that you were with the world in the earthly ministry of Jesus, but the product of that ministry, the product of the gospel, is your continued abiding presence with your people. Thank you for that, for that grace, for your mercy toward us, God, for pursuing us the way you have. God, we love you. You are so, so good. We pray these things in Jesus' name.